0: All right, well, good morning. I invite you all to come on in. We're going to go ahead and get started with our, our Sunday school hour, continuing in our survey of the books of the New Testament. This morning with Paul's epistle to the Romans. And before we dive in, let's, uh, let's go to our Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on our time in the word together. Our Father, this morning, we are before you on the basis not of anything that we have done or any worth in us, Lord, but because of your unmerited grace in Jesus Christ. We thank you for uh, his perfect sacrifice and and how that is spelled out and unpacked and explained for us in this letter that we're, we're going to dive into. And so we pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit and Lord, express our confidence Um, that your word will not return to you void. I pray this morning that it would accomplish a work in us to give us something of a deeper understanding of your gospel, and I pray that we might see Christ more clearly. In his name, amen. If you had to choose from history a city which most embodied at the same time both the height Of human achievement and the depth of human depravity, you could not choose a better example than Rome, the capital city of the most powerful empire that the world has ever seen. Roman military might, Roman culture, Roman politics, and Roman architecture reshaped the ancient world. I mean, Most famous architectural symbol that most people would associate and which seems to capture best Rome's power, its opulence, and its evil is the Colosseum. Artist Thomas Cole said that to look down into the stadium of the Colosseum is to gaze into the valley of the shadow of death. And it stands today an enduring reminder of the blood of the martyrs. It was here that as many as 20,000 Christians were put to death in front of cheering spectators for no other reason than that they would not recant their faith in Jesus Christ. There was a saying in ancient Rome that the Colosseum was Rome and that the day the Colosseum fell, Rome would fall. And the implied meaning was that Rome would never fall because the Colosseum was built to stand forever its foundations its walls were poured with almost two million tons of concrete and stone but around the same time that the foundation of the Colosseum was being laid just a few years before in 59 bc another foundation was laid when the letter that we have before us this morning was written And while the ravages of time have seen the Colosseum, like the glory of ancient Rome, reduced to a shell of decay, the foundation for the faith in the doctrines of the gospel set forth by Paul in the book of Romans remains steadfast. From when it was first unrolled and read to those early believers gathered in the home of Priscilla and Aquila, throughout 2,000 years of the church's history, Paul's epistle to the Romans has remained a bulwark for the faith, never ceasing to build up and to strengthen the church. It was the doctrine of Romans which first converted Augustine and framed his theology in AD 386. And it was by studying to teach the book of Romans in November 1515 that a Catholic university professor named Martin Luther became convinced that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It would be impossible for us to oversell. In fact, it it would be impossible for us to fully grasp what a vital resource for the church God's Spirit has provided in this letter. Martin Luther said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel. John Calvin said, if a man understands it, he has a sure road open to him to understanding the whole of Scripture. When you study this book, you cannot help but be blown away by the sheer scope of Paul's teaching contained in it. To illustrate this, I want to read for you a list that Pastor John MacArthur has put together of the questions that Rome answers from beginning to end. Here they are. What is the good news of God? Is Jesus really God? What proves he's God? Why did he come? What is a saint? What is God like? How can God send people to hell? What will happen to people who have never heard the gospel? Why do men reject God and Christ? Why are there false religions and idols? What is man's biggest sin? Why is there sexual perversion, hate, and crime in the world, and why are they so rampant? What is the standard by which God condemns people? How can a person who has never heard be held responsible? Are Jews more responsible to believe than Gentiles? Who is a true Jew? Is it any advantage to be Jewish? How good is man? How bad is man? I'm gonna have to speed up here. Can anyone keep God's law? How do we know we're sinners? How are we justified and forgiven? How is a Christian related to Abraham? What is the importance of Christ's death? What is the importance of his resurrection? What is the importance of his present life? For whom did Christ die? Where can men find real peace and hope? How are we related spiritually to Adam? How are we related spiritually to Christ? What is grace? What is the Christian's relation to sin? How important is obedience? How are law and grace related to one another? Why is it such a struggle to live the Christian life? How many natures does a believer have? What does the Holy Spirit do for us? How intimate is a Christian's relationship to God? Why is there suffering? Will the world ever be any different? How can I pray properly What does predestination mean? How secure is a Christian? What is God's present plan for Israel? What is his future plan for Israel? Why have the Gentiles been chosen? What is our responsibility to Israel? How is a person saved? And what is the basic bottom line for Christian commitment? What is the Christian's relationship to the world, to other Christians, to the unsaved, to the government? What is love, and how does it work? How do we deal with neutral things, things that are neither right nor wrong? What is true freedom? How important is unity in the church? And these are just a few. Romans is vital. It is a vital resource for the church, and we should pay attention. So it was authored... Uh, as we've already stated, by the Apostle Paul. The first word of verse 1, chapter 1, identifies him as the author, and this has never really been disputed. But what do we know about Paul? Who is this man, and what is his history? Well, I want us to think about this for a little bit, so that we can see the contrast between who he was and who, by the gospel, he becomes. So his name wasn't always Paul. This is the name that he took after his conversion. His parents named him a good Jewish name, Saul. He was born into a wealthy Jewish family. Saul had been raised a Pharisee like his father in the city of Tarsus, in the southern part of what is now modern-day Turkey. Now, Tarsus was an important trade center and one of the key centers of learning in the ancient world uh, with the university there. And one of the chief exports of this city of Tarsus was tents, another tanned leather good. So Saul grew up Learning his father's trade of making tents. And uh, he grew up receiving a world-class education at the school there in Tarsus. At age 13, he was sent by his family to study in Jerusalem under the teaching of uh, this celebrated teacher of the law, doctor of the law by the name of Gamaliel. And over time, Saul became sort of a, a Michael Jordan among Pharisees. He was a legalist on the absolute first order. We first see Paul in the book of Acts chapter 7 as this young Pharisee who's holding the cloaks of the men as they, as they are stoning Stephen to death, something which he fully approved of and which whet his appetite to see more of these blaspheming Christians imprisoned and put to death. Paul was so zealous, a legalist, he became a fanatic who made his life's mission to stamp out this rogue sect of those who believed Jesus of Nazareth to be the Messiah. And then an event takes place in Acts chapter 9 where we read that as Paul was breathing out threats and murder against the church, on his way to um, Damascus in order to arrest more Christians, Saul came face to face with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look really briefly in Acts in chapter 9. At this conversion of Saul, picking up in verse 4. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. After coming in contact with the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to his lordship, Paul's life, was utterly changed. Now let's look at how Paul identifies himself to the Roman church in Romans chapter one, verse one. We read, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. What a testament to the transforming power of the gospel. This man who was persecutor of the church, is now the slave of Christ. This man who zealously worked to gain his own righteousness by keeping the law has now forsaken all in order to know the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the author of our book. Now, so he, the recipients of the letter to the Romans, uh, I want to think about them real briefly. Rome was, Rome was a city on the very western edge of the gospel frontier. The gospel is first proclaimed in Jerusalem, I and mean, then it moves outward. And so this is a church um, with many new, mostly Gentile believers, um, and the gospel hasn't yet gone further west than Rome. So there was not at this time any apostolic teaching. The, the, the church at Rome had few Leaders, there were, many, there were missionaries who had gone there to spread the gospel, but contrary to what the Catholic Church teaches, there's no evidence to show that the Apostle Peter or any other apostle prior to the writing of Romans had come to Rome and provided any apostolic teaching. And so this is Paul's burden as he unpacks these doctrines, is that they would have solid apostolic teaching of doctrine in his letter. Many of these people would have been slaves. The population of Rome was about... One in, one in three or one in four people, slaves. And servanthood is a common theme that we see come up over and over throughout Paul's letter. Um, and while there were some lay missionaries working here, like husband and wife team Priscilla and Aquila, spreading the gospel, um, as we have said, there was no apostolic ministry yet in Rome. Um, and now, So where did this Roman church come from? Uh, It's believed that the church at Rome was most likely planted when um, this group of people who visited Jerusalem at Pentecost and then heard Peter's gospel message were converted, put their faith in Christ, and returned home, bringing this good news of Christ with them and sharing it with those that they knew. So in writing his letter, Paul's intent on instructing and equipping these believers in his divinely appointed role as apostle to the Gentiles. What was his purpose in writing the letter? He explains some of his reasons in his introduction as he identifies himself as an apostle and as such he is writing to provide for the church apostolic instruction. Um, he also wrote that he, he's writing to them because he really wanted to, to go there. He says that he's been praying unceasingly for years that God would give him an opportunity to visit Rome and to have an in-person ministry. And Paul would often send an extensive letter to a church in advance of his visit in order to build ministry rapport with that congregation and to introduce the church to his teaching. Um, Paul also wanted to go to this church because he saw in it, uh, he saw it as being very strategically important to his goal of bringing the gospel all the way to Spain. And he had this burden this desire to see the church at Rome engage in that missionary uh, mission to Spain. But in verse 15 of chapter 1, Paul reveals his main purpose in writing this letter, where he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul's been chomping at the bit. For years, he's earnestly desired to to preach the gospel to this church in Rome, to unpack its truth to these believers. And we can be grateful that God in his sovereignty prevented Paul from actually going to Rome so that he would write a letter instead, so that all of its Holy Spirit-inspired truth has been preserved for us. So since Paul can't be there in person, and possibly in case he thought he might never make it there, By writing this letter, he is equipping the church with foundational gospel truths that they are going to need in order to stand firm in the faith, in the face of persecution. In these 16 chapters, Paul thoroughly unpacks what the gospel is, how it works, and how it is to be applied in the life of the believer. This is his main purpose, his main mission in the letter, to preach the gospel, That is the good news of Jesus Christ concerning his death, burial, resurrection, and what it means. In verse 16 through 17, Paul emphatically states that this gospel-centered focus is the purpose of his teaching where he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I think we, we typically take this to mean that Paul's saying he's, he's not embarrassed to preach the gospel to the lost, to the unconverted, and that the gospel is effective for seeing people get saved. But Paul has, has, a, has a meaning that goes so much further than that. What he is saying is, I am not ashamed to preach the gospel to you, church, to you, Christian. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. The salvation Paul has in view is the ultimate salvation which will be accomplished in the believer's life on the day that they stand before God in a glorified body, perfectly holy and perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. And this gospel Paul preaches is the power that, yes, saves us on the day in which we believe in Jesus Christ. It is also the power of God by which we are being saved and it is the power of God by which we will we will be saved on the day that we are glorified with Christ so there are some in the church probably then and and certainly today who believe that the gospel is somehow Christianity 101 you know the basics that we kind of get down at first and then eventually we we want to move on from but we do not move on from the gospel We can only go further up and further in to the glories of this good news of what the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ mean. We're going to spend eternity mining its treasures. It is the power of God, and it saves to the uttermost. So what does Paul say is the source of this power? In verse 17, he says, "'For in it the righteousness of God "'is revealed from faith.'" For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, for in it the gift of God's righteousness received by faith is manifested. It is revealed. What Paul is saying here is that the gospel is God's power to save because it brings to light this amazing truth that through the death Of his son on the cross, God has made a way to provide his own righteousness, crediting it to the one who has faith in Christ. And the latter part of verse 17 that we just read could be said to be the the key verse of this entire letter. It's the crux of Paul's argument. The righteous shall live, not by keeping the law, not by any human effort or merit, but by faith. Paul's mission in this letter is to unpack for the Roman believers the doctrines of the gospel. And his grand central theme throughout the letter is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. So our outline for the book, uh, for this letter, can hopefully show us how Paul develops his theme of the righteousness of God as it is revealed in the gospel, and hopefully, as well, some of these main points in the outline will serve as a, a sort of list of some of the key gospel doctrines which Paul uh, expounds on in his letter to the Romans. So, uh, point one, it's a, it's a nine point outline, which is as much as, as, uh, as uh, we could condense it to, uh, John MacArthur and I. Um, first, in chapter one, we have greetings and introduction. Uh, and which we've already looked at. And then uh, the second main point um, is Paul's introduction of his theme, which we find in verses 16 and 17. Thirdly, we have this doctrine of condemnation, or the need of God's righteousness, in chapters 1, verse 18 through 3, verse 20. Uh, next, we have this doctrine of justification. Um, which Paul launches into in verse 21 of chapter 3, the provision of God's righteousness. Um, fifthly, we see the doctrine of sanctification and the demonstration of God's righteousness in chapter 8, verses 18 through 39. Um, our sixth point is the doctrine of glorification or the culmination of God's righteousness in chapter 8, verses 18 through 39. Uh, Our seventh key point that we're going to look at is restoration. Israel's reception of God's righteousness. Uh, Main point number eight is application, or the behavior of God's righteousness in the life of the believer, in the life of the church. From chapter 12, verse 1, through chapter 15, verse 13. And finally, we have uh, in uh, main point nine, the conclusion, the greetings, and the benediction at the close of the letter in chapter 15, verses 14 through chapter 16, 27. So we've already touched on points one and two by looking at Paul's greeting, his introduction to his theme. So we're going to pick up our survey through the book with this first key doctrine, which Paul unpacks in verse 18 of chapter one, that of condemnation, the need of God's righteousness. You say, I thought thought this was supposed to be good news, right? Paul gives us the bad news first, and he doesn't break it easy. In verse 18, he launches into this unapologetic declaration of the just wrath of God against sin and the utter sinfulness of all of mankind. Verse 18, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Paul actually spends more time in his letter. Developing this truth of the sinfulness of man than any other doctrine which he expounds. For three chapters, he strips away every defense, every excuse until the reader comes face to face with this reality that all men, Jews and Gentiles, those who've never heard, those who have the law, are accountable to God's righteousness and no one measures up. Gentiles, because through general revelation, they have known God to be God and yet do not honor him as God. And in Paul's letter, this is seen as being the the height of man's sin, that they fail to honor God as God, and so God gives them over to these debased sins. In chapter 3, verse 9, we read, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. This is the essential starting point to understand the gospel. And when we leave this out of our gospel proclamation, we gut it of its power. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Man will find no hope in Christ until he first understands the utter hopelessness of his situation before God. So at the close of of Paul's argument, In chapter 3, the whole world stands condemned because of sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. The indictment has been read. The verdict is guilty for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this is man's dilemma, which Paul points out so clearly in these first three chapters. That God is just and holy. His own righteousness is the standard for acceptance with him. As the Lord Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this is something which no fallen man can achieve. For by works of the law shall no man be justified, Paul says. The burning question then becomes the same question that Job asked and that every religion that has ever existed has asked. How then can man be righteous before God? Paul, what's what's the good news? In verse 21, he gets to the good part as he outlines God's plan of redemption through this doctrine of justification, the provision of God's righteousness. He shows us first the source of righteousness and then an example of righteousness from the Old Testament in the life of Abraham. Verse 21 of chapter three says, but now, these two words signal a monumental shift, turning our eyes to the glory of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God has made a way that the unrighteous can be made right with him through faith in Jesus Christ. For the one who believes, God will graciously provide the righteousness which he requires, his own righteousness. Verse 24 of chapter three says, we're justified by his grace as a gift. What Amazing good news. The word justified here simply means to be declared righteous to be made right with God. So how can this be? How can God, who is holy and who is just, clear the guilty? How does he remain just and the justifier of the ungodly? Verse 24 gives us the answer. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. To redeem something means to to buy back, to purchase out of, And as those who have faith in Jesus Christ, we are redeemed through Christ, bought out from under the condemnation and the penalty of sin, purchased with a price. And God literally purchases a people out from under his own wrath. And the price is the sinless life of his son, Jesus Christ, a gift free to us, costly to him. Look at verse 25, speaking of Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So propitiation means to satisfy, to make propitious. So the blood of Jesus Christ, his atoning death turns God's wrath into his favor, it propitiates his wrath. So this is how God is able to be just and to justify the ungodly. Our guilt is not swept under the rug. It is not ignored. Its penalty is paid in full by Jesus on the cross. Our guilt became his. His righteousness becomes ours through faith and it is a righteousness that can only be received By faith, it cannot be earned. Verse 28, Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It's not about anything that I can achieve. It is all about God, based solely on what he gives. Unmerited. All of grace. In chapter 4, Paul gives an example of this righteousness. Like a good apologist, he, he defends his argument, drawing from the Old Testament an example of justification by faith in the life of Abraham. So he backs up the statement that he made in verse 21 that the law and the prophets point to, they bear witness to this doctrine of justification by faith. He shows how from the life of Abraham, we read in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So in doing this, Paul is showing he's not coming up with some new doctrine. God doesn't have multiple ways by which he saves people. And Paul is not doing away with the Old Testament. He's not doing away with the law or the prophets. They are in perfect agreement with his doctrine. They're saying what he is saying. So the Old Testament and the gospel harmonize together, and Paul is showing that God... Saves people by one means and one means only throughout all of human history. Old Testament saints are saved in the same way that New Testament saints are. They're justified by grace through faith. So we've seen the need for righteousness in chapters one through three. We've seen the provision of God's righteousness and its source in chapter three, an example in chapter four. And in chapter five, Paul unpacks both the blessings and the imputation of righteousness. Here are just some of the, the blessings which Paul uh, shows us come through this doctrine of justification by faith in the beginning of chapter 5. First, peace with God. Hope that allows us to rejoice in suffering. The love of God is poured out in our hearts through the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are sealed by the Spirit of God. And we have this confident assurance of reconciliation with God. Look down in chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Continuing on from here, Paul delves deeper into how the imputation of Christ's righteousness works in verses 12 through 21 of chapter 5. By giving insight in this chapter into the nature of our relationship to Adam and to the guilt of his sin, how as representative of the human race, the guilt of Adam's sin and the resultant curse of death is necessarily passed down to all of his descendants. And Paul shows how it is by that same representative principle that Jesus, as the second Adam, could become a surety for all of God's elect. And that the positive righteousness which Christ has earned by his perfect obedience and the life that we couldn't live is imputed to all who believe. It is credited to them. So we've seen what the gospel is. How it works to justify the sinner, freeing him from condemnation in the past sense. Next we're going to see how the gospel frees us from the present power of sin through the doctrine of sanctification. We see this in chapter 6 of Romans through chapter 8, verse 39. Sanctification, the demonstration of God's righteousness. At the beginning of this section, Paul anticipates how sinful men are going to try and twist this doctrine of justification by faith alone, using it as a sort of free pass to indulge in the flesh. In his commentary on the book of Romans, John Calvin writes, It is indeed natural to our flesh, as soon as it has had some slight knowledge of grace, to indulge quietly in its own vices and lusts, as though it had become free from all danger. But Paul, on the contrary, contends here in chapter 6 and 7 and 8, that we cannot partake of the righteousness of Christ, except we also lay hold on sanctification." Sanctification is the Holy Spirit-empowered process by which sinful men are continually being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in practical holiness. This is a, a progressive work in the believer's life while we remain in these unglorified bodies of flesh, but it is a work which will be brought to full completion, full perfection. We will be fully sanctified on the day that we are glorified. So in these chapters, Paul reveals the key to victorious Christian living and growth in sanctification as he delves into the nature of the believer's spiritual union with Jesus Christ and the true significance of what it means to be baptized into Jesus Christ. Look down at verse 3 of chapter 6. Do you not know To any believer caught in the lies of sin, caught in besetting sin, Romans chapter 6 is a lifeline of truth, where Paul is presenting the reality of life in Jesus Christ and the freedom from sin's power, which is secured for us by the righteousness of Jesus Christ received through faith. So throughout the rest of this section dealing with sanctification, uh, we see so much of Paul's pastoral heart for this church in his letter. Although he'd never been to Rome, he'd never met most of these people. He was writing by inspiration of the Spirit in a way that was able to minister to the needs of this congregation exactly where they were, in exactly what they were facing. And nowhere is this more evident than in verse 18 of chapter 8, where he points his readers to the hope and suffering which is provided in the doctrine of glorification, the culmination of God's righteousness. Look down in Romans 8, verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Within two or three years of when Paul wrote this letter, um, the great Roman fire broke out, destroying more than half of the city. And the emperor at that time, Nero, that historians tell us probably actually set the fire, made Christians his scapegoat, claiming that it was Christians who burned down the city of Rome. And this launched a season of persecution like the church has not seen since. Um, Christians were, were called Nero's candles, because immediately following the fire, he began to round up people who professed faith in Jesus and use them to light his gardens as human torches. Followed by this, it became illegal to profess faith in Jesus Christ, and unless you would make a sacrifice to the gods and curse the name of Jesus, you were doomed to die in the city of Rome. Rome these Christians would know suffering. And I can't help but believe that many of them, as they were experiencing the hatred and ostracism of society, as they saw loved ones arrested, or as they themselves faced martyrdom, would have drawn such hope from these words. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The hope of glory is what Paul Points this church to in the midst of suffering. And it is also in this context of suffering that he unveils some of the greatest treasures of theology that we find in this letter. Truths that he's going to expand on in chapter 9, the doctrines of the sovereignty of God and divine election. Look down in verse 28 of chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, glorified. This is probably the central text in Scripture on the absolute sovereignty of God and on the eternal security of the believer. There could be no greater comfort in suffering than the truth which Paul points out here. First, that nothing, absolutely nothing which can happen to us in this life is outside of God's sovereign control. And secondly, that the saving work which God has begun in us, which is according to his sovereign choice, which he purposed from eternity past, he will complete. God does not finish what he begins. And none that he calls slip through his fingers. The salvation of his elect depends upon his power and his power alone, praise be to God. So Paul doubles down on this theme of comfort in the sovereign grace of God in an explosion of praise in verse 31, where he says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies I can guarantee you that these verses were on the hearts of many of those believers as they were dragged out onto the sand of the Colosseum, as wild animals closed with them, as the torch was set to the kindling, as the swords fell. This is what they were singing to each other. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In chapter 9, Paul expands on these doctrines of grace by addressing God's plan of restoration and Israel's reception of God's righteousness. And then in chapter 12, and we're going to have to move quickly in order to wrap up on time. We see Paul's application. He's unpacked what the gospel is, how it works, and now he explains its demands upon the believer and how it is applied in a Christian's life. And what it boils down to is surrender and humility and service and love in the church. Chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... In light of all of these gospel truths that, he's, that we've been seeing, in light of all that God has done through Christ to make us righteous, Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then in his conclusion, we have in chapters 15 through 16, Paul's greetings to believers at the church. Greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, his beloved fellow servants, that this church was was meeting in their home. Paul eventually made it to Rome. But instead of preaching the gospel in the church there, he preached it from a prison cell to the praetorian guard and to those in Caesar's household. And the gospel went out. Eventually, this one-time persecutor of the church himself became a martyr for Christ on a road outside the city of Rome. He was an example for the believers of faith to the end. May we, like Paul, and like that early church who first received this letter, being equipped with its doctrines of the gospel, stand firm in them. May we boldly proclaim that we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, thank you uh, for this time we could spend together in God's word. I hope that you will go home and read Romans. If not today, then soon. So we'll see you back here in 15 minutes for worship.